0: Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow.
1: Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, and with me is my co-host and editor of California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. We're here to talk about some of our top stories. And first, Jason, how are you doing?
0: Great, Dan. Greetings from California. It's been a busy morning here. We just got done with uh, quite lengthy meeting about punctuation. So that's the life of a reporter. Apparently we're going to be syncing up your publication, clearing up and my publication, CEM, as far as style. So exciting stuff.
1: Yeah. So look out readers Yes, for very minor changes in the style that we will spend probably hours discussing. Uh, there's nothing as fascinating as a conversation about, uh, style, writing style in a newsroom. I once spent like a good 20 or 30 minutes talking about the proper use of an M dash and versus in dashes, yep. when to use which and how to use it. Do you put a space in before and after an M dash? We don't uh, do, you, no, I, right, but that's, that was, yep. yeah. Ellipses, can, spaces oh, between yeah. the dots,
0: spaces around the dots. These are the type of things we spend a lot of time thinking about. About a good forty five minutes this morning discussing it to kick the week off. Yeah, luckily so, I had strong coffee.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know if if we get enough requests, we can live stream that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Big so, changes. Uh, coming. Yeah, well, uh, what do you what do you have for us this week, Jason? What All do you right. have for our listeners?
0: Well. I have new legislation in California to expedite utility undergrounding, covered by Abigail S- Sawyer. And then I was going to talk about my column this week, which I gave the title, Los Angeles Times Questions Whether Rural Northern Californians Should Exist. So I waded into a little bit of, I say, interjournalistic commentary here. But yeah, I had some feelings about this series of articles that I'll share briefly with everybody. And that's about it from California. I know you have
1: uh, some crossover stories up there in the Northwest this week for us. Yeah, our uh, top story I have to talk about uh, certainly is one that affects both of our readerships. Southwest Power Pool came out with its Markets Plus draft service offering, something that everyone's Mm -hmm. been waiting for for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a couple electric transportation stories, some federal funding for electric vehicles in the Northwest, and then a big first, uh, first in electric aviation yeah. and then last, uh, frustration over the progress and communication in the Columbia river treaty. All but right. before we get into any of that, you got, um, something to tell us about an upcoming event that you helped put together.
0: Yeah, it's our webinar on October 19th at 10 AM to noon pacific time uh it's micro it's called microgrids in california opportunities and challenges for the energy sector designed for people working at utilities community choice aggregators businesses government energy and regulatory agencies etc it's a 2 hour event we got some great speakers uh, this will be moderated by peter asmus executive director of alaska microgrid group and peter is a really interesting guy to to listen to and very knowledgeable for more information Please visit newsdata.com backslash C-O-N-F for conference or email marko at newsdata.com.
1: Yeah, that that, I'm really looking forward to listening to this. I have to say, obviously I'm biased, but Mm. I think we put on some great webinars. So uh, I definitely encourage people to check it out. This is a super important topic. I am really looking forward to listening to this. And I, I do mean that in all sincerity. Yeah, me too. And uh, we'll be covering it. Plugging it.
0: Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. No, I, I think our webinars are, are very high quality too. And uh, we'll be writing up the content, but people should listen in.
1: Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you helping put this together. You got a great well, lineup.
0: Yeah. It was, um, as I said before, Abigail and Mark took the lead on a lot of the reaching out to the
1: speakers, but uh, they did a great job. Yeah, I'm I, sorry. I did not mean to sell anybody short, sh- short in terms of credit. Don't sell my shirt either. It was a great. Uh, yeah. I'm selling shirts. Uh, it was a great team collaboration. So appreciate all of it. So okay. I'm going to uh, get us started here with uh, the Southwest Power Proposal or Power Pool Proposal. A lot of Ps. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Right. SPP came out with their draft service offering. A lot of uh, into these waiting for this. So if anybody's not familiar with this, the background is the SPP and California's market organization, California independent system operator, better known as CAISO, they are both competing to provide their day ahead market and imbalance markets tied up together and trying to get them stood up in the West. And so we've got these two competing proposals, a lot of entities, a lot of big utilities weighing in. There's definitely a momentum and a consensus growing around the need for greater market collaboration, something that there have been many efforts to do in the past that have all foundered on different views, different priorities. But this is the environment has really changed. The conversation has really changed just so dramatically, even within the past few years. That this has risen and there's just a consensus coming together really quickly. And there's could be something that comes up that you know founders this effort, but it just seems like entities really see this as the necessary next step. And so, without further ado, I'll, I'll get into the SPP proposal. So I wrote this up uh, in a story that came out Friday, and they first of all they SPP really worked hard to come up with an independence, independent governance structure that really gave the participants in the West, a lot of autonomy over the market decisions, they still have the SPP board of directors kind of as a backstop for decisions that affect SPP's business operations or kind of the, uh, like things like contracts for new participants that directly affect SPP, which will be the operator of this new market if it does go ahead. But SPP's board of directors really is going to take a step back. Again, there's some things that they have final say in, but they're trying to give as much autonomy over how the market functions to the participants in the West. And so the, there will be some tie-ins between the Western grid and the Eastern grid. It's limitations though, in terms of how many places there are just the infrastructure and right now it's, you know, the more participants they have, the more tie-ins they will have and that increases the efficiency between the two sides. But uh, right now, like I said, the focus is on the day ahead and paired with the energy imbalance so that one hour granularity for the day ahead, that'll settle daily and then energy imbalance, five minute increments that are constantly settling as the day goes on Uh, they have some interesting pricing mechanisms here that again, they really put in a lot of effort to getting potential participant feedback and input on what kind of pricing structures, how to incorporate greenhouse gas uh, and carbon pricing measures in like Washington and California and have flexibility to allow those products, allow those pricing in the products, but not have it affect uh, products in other states, jurisdictions that don't have that carbon pricing, it's the pricing mechanisms are just too lengthy and complex to get into with the time that we have. But for anybody who's interested, definitely check out what I wrote up and uh, look for a Another follow-up story coming out this week. Uh, you know, yeah, again, very interesting stuff. That's all available on newsdata.com. And so now they've, they planned SPP plans to issue a final service offering by late November, and they're going to ask participants to fin- financially commit by the end of the year to the next phase where they'll start moving towards implementation. And Kaiso is kind of on a similar trajectory timeline. They, I have to say though, it really feels like the, the statements coming out of entities, there are a lot more entities that seem to be expressing really interest in leaning towards kind of like, Hey, we can't wait to sign up almost, uh, with SPP and just not hearing that with Kaiso. Uh, this is a lot of the entities that kind of like in Colorado and on those most eastern states of the western section, they're closest to SPP. It, it, you know, of course, everybody's hedging their comments saying, well, we're involved with both. We're you know giving it a we want to see both compare or compare the two options. I think that's true for a lot of the entities in the West. They, they're not really leaning towards one or the other at least publicly at this point. That said, uh, there's a lot of entities that, again, those more the ones closer to SPP, and I just had a story recently about a study that came out that was commissioned by mem- uh, participants, current participants in SPP's Western Energy Imbalance Service. So mm-hmm. it's, again, that five minute increment. There's a handful of entities, again, closest to SPP that are involved with that. And they, came, they commissioned a study looking at the benefit of setting up an RTO for these entities In the current footprint of that uh, imbalance, SVP's imbalance market in the West, and they were very enthusiastic about the publicly enthusiastic about the results of that study that showed some clear economic benefit for them. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next few months.
0: Yeah, uh, it's funny you say that because in our meeting this morning—not the punctuation meeting, but. (laughs) <laughs> editorial uh, abigail was saying similar things about interest in spp and spp is already in rto right where the kaisos and obviously an iso yeah um and yeah it's this is going full speed ahead and you're all over the coverage so appreciate that
1: yeah and abigail has been she's been covering this a lot too mm-hmm. uh and i'm looking forward it's been a pleasure uh, collaborating with her so far and looking forward to doing more of that as this moves forward. Yep, Abigail bringing
0: her usual sharpness and detail to the coverage, but I think we're on the leading edge of
1: covering this. and I'm glad you have another story this week because I can run it too. Yeah, and I'll be uh, talking to one of the executives from SPP who's really been involved with uh, this process of, of uh, shaping this, this proposal. I'm hoping that we can do that as a podcast, an in-depth interview. I'm not sure yet. Uh, so okay. hopefully, look. Well, keep an eye out for that, dear listeners. Well, yeah. Sounds
0: good. Um, well, back in California, our lead story in CEM was new legislation signed by Governor Gavin Newsom on September 29th on utility undergrounding, which will uh, boost Pacific Gas and Electric's plan to underground 10,000 miles of lines, uh, legislation by Senator Mike McGuire, a Democrat from Healdsburg, SB 884. He says, undergrounding as a means of wildfire mitigation is often unnecessary. I'm sorry, he doesn't say that. Critics of his bill say that. He was a sponsor of this bill. Uh, So there were some parties that wanted a veto on this bill, including the Utility Reform Network. Um, So SBB 8 SB 884 authorizes adding more than a hundred billion dollars to electric bills, which will average out to an increase of $400 annually for PG customers by 2032. So yeah, um, higher electricity rates will threaten the switched away from gasoline powered cars to EVs, according to these groups. But our governor here has signed nearly a thousand bills recently. This is one of them. And we, I had a, another story covering a lot of climate energy related bills in our last issue. So check that out, newsdata.com. And we'll go back to you for the Northwest.
1: Yeah. So we have a new member of the team, Greg Mason. He just joined News Data from, he comes from the Spokane Spokesman Review. And before that, a couple daily newspapers in upstate New York, actually not too far from where my dad's family is from. But he got started last week and he had a really in-depth story, coming strong out of the gate, had a really in-depth story about the Federal Highway Administration's allocation of more than $600 million nationwide for states to start expanding networks of EV electric vehicle charging stations. And the first wave is going to be available through a uh, $4 billion national electric vehicle infrastructure formula, formula program, which will provide states with up to 80% of eligible project costs over the next five years. And so this is a major step forward in terms of actually getting some funding flowing, uh, for projects on the ground you know, still 600 million. It's a big number spread Mm -hmm. out over 50 states, five years, not as big. That's it. So he, he goes into kind of laying out what the four Northwest states are doing and look, looking to spend this money on and build out their charging infrastructure, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. Yeah. It was a really in-depth article, encourage listeners to go check it out again, newsdata.com. Greg Mason our newest member of the team and this was a is now of particular interest to me because last week the car that we have had for 16 years my the first car first new car that I bought actually the first car I bought and the first car that my wife and I bought together our, our 2006 jetta it I'm sorry to say it it passed away oh yeah, it was the car that like we brought all of, well, two of our children, two of our three kids home, in. and by the wow. third kid, we went the, we finally went in for the minivan. Did you? Yeah, but wow. uh, yeah, it was uh, an engine light came on. I went to the auto shop, or like the O'Reilly Auto Parts, and got the little thing that you can plug in to get the code that said, oh, your cylinders are misfiring. So I took it yeah. to our mechanic, hoping that it would just be the spark plugs, he called me a short while later and said, yeah, this, this car is undriveable. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to cost, you know, potentially a, a few thousand dollars to fix. And even then, you know, it's just, it's starting to get to that point where it's really, we put, had to put in an increasing amount of money. Not, not too bad. I gotta say it's held up yeah. really well, but that's How many it. miles did you get out of it? Uh, you know, I wish I had checked before. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I forgot to take a look at the odometer.
0: I thought oh, about man. that.
1: Yeah. I'm, I mean, meant a lot, I don't know, 150,000, <laughs> which yeah, I'm sure there's some people who'd say, well, that's not too much. That's said, uh, it, yeah, it's yeah. just also old and you've got materials starting to break down and, yeah, but yeah. Uh, and so anyways, we ended up, fortunately we were able to find a car that was available because. Uh, somebody in order had fallen through, they would canceled on it. You know, it was either that or like wait a year for a car mm-hmm. that we wanted. And so we ended up going with the Volkswagen ID Four. Uh, so I was not planning to sign up for car payments last week. Yikes. Is it, I, uh, pardon my ignorance. Is that an EV? Uh, it is. Yeah. All right. It's Came called IV? Uh, ID. ID. I- okay. Identification. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. From Volkswagen. It's a. Uh, Compact crossover,
0: hmm.
1: so and, you know uh, you identify as electric now. Yeah, we cool. still have the gas-guzzling uh, minivan, Toyota yeah. Sienna, which has been great. You know, it's funny. This is just to show, like, tell me you are middle age without telling you are <laughs> middle age. The feature I was most excited about: the back row of seats folds down, so the entire back behind the front row of seats becomes storage. That's,
0: that's great yeah, by those. I um, know. That's I, right. I, I, I was, never was like, made oh my gosh, mini-
1: we can fit, like, I can fit so many, like, big things in there.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. Well, I, I can see so those minivans can go kind of fast, too, if you get the six-cylinder. Yeah. But uh, you don't see people racing them very much. Well, <laughs> no. cool. Thanks for the update. Maybe you can write in the pages of clearing up of
1: your experiences
0: with your new EV.
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's what Mark said. I think there's a column in there. Yeah. Well, so we had another big first in electric transportation last week. There is the first clean sheet, a legit regional transportation, re- regional passenger airplane took its first flight. Uh, it's by a company, Aviation, which is based up here around Seattle, powered by Magni X. Engines, they are also based up here in in the Seattle area. So their Aviation's Alice airplane took off uh, in the dawn light at Moses Lake in central Washington, which is a big test flight area for the airspace hub up here in the Northwest. And again, this is just a big step forward in terms of the viability, commercial viability of regional electric transportation, there's, I've written a little bit about this year and elsewhere, I used to cover aerospace and still occasionally just keep up with it and write something here or there, just because I I find it fascinating. The development of electric aviation, I could talk about that for hours in terms of the technology and the trade-off between batteries and jet fuel and the energy density, which is very, very far apart. But the you know, there's increasingly commercial viability in sh- short-haul regional transportation. So this plane, the Alice seats a bit, uh, eight plus a pilot, a range of 100, 150 nautical miles. They already have orders for 125 uh, airplanes including twelve cargo versions from DHL Express. So wow. this is yeah, they're moving forward. Uh, the, the, most of those orders are from two US based regional airlines looking to build out their electric fleets. And there's various mm-hmm. other airplanes in development around the world, but this is a sector that are a part of aviation that we're gonna start seeing some serious momentum in. Now the it's going to be a decades until you know, you've got a hundred seat equivalent of a jetliner or a hundred seat electric jetliner. That's a ways off. Um, and yeah. it's arguable, you know, there are certainly some people who say it's really, the chemistry is never going to get there for it. Maybe with hydrogen fuel cells, but anyways, we're supposed to keep these, these, uh, little updates short. So I'm going to stop talking about this. I could go on for hours though. Yeah, <laughs> should, that's pretty should, cool. Yeah. So and I love the name Aviation. That's all pretty, yeah. pretty funny. So you're looking to start a feud with the LA Times. Now, sure. Just kidding. Am. No. So we're going to go <laughs> to Jason's Opinion Corner. This is my opinion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I
0: do occasionally do opinion pieces here. I, it's very rare for me to take on another publication. I, I don't have anything personal against the LA Times. Uh, They did run a series of articles last week that I thought was um, a little unreasonable. Listeners can find them themselves. Here's the titles. Here's one. Rural climate skeptics are costing us time and money. Do we keep indulging them? That article suggests that maybe the town of Greenville should not be rebuilt after being burned down out of wildfire because it will be burned down again. Another article, climate change is fueling extremism, raising temperatures. I'm raising tempers along with temperatures. And finally, California spends billions rebuilding burned towns. The case for calling it quits. Um, So, yeah, this got into a lot of political, social topics. And the tone of this was bizarre to me. You know, you have the two LA Times reporters here, Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabria. Um, So they sort of came up to rural Northern California, and this is where I live. I've only been here five and a half years. I don't want to give people the idea that I'm a native, but um, you know, I, I live in wildfire country. I live in Nevada City. I've written about life up here, uh, the PSPS's, the power shutoffs. I wrote about of the um, uh, the bear fire that was right next to our town and almost almost had to evacuate. And I, I wrote about uh, the winter storm last January and the multi day power outage. So I've gotten to know the people in this area. I'm a you know, consider myself a member of the community. I have a daughter here um, So I won't spend a huge amount of time on this I, Again, they said basically the suggestions communities here should not be rebuilt Because of the cost to Southern California taxpayers and they constantly in these articles use the term us Referring to themselves and people that don't live here, which I found to be pretty bizarre Uh, as if rural Northern Californians are somehow not part of the rest of society. Um, So, yeah, what was one lead? It's hard to explain just how much some people in rural California dislike and distrust the rest of us. That's a lead in the LA Times. Uh, So, yeah, and then I guess the next, it didn't take long for the piece on climate and extremism to suggest that Disproportional amount of racists, uh, right-wingers, and anti-government people. Here's here's a list of the references in these articles. MAGA, Republicanism, anti-Semitism, anti-governmental cowboy ethos. They brought up the January 6th attack on the Capitol. They brought up Charlottesville, Virginia. They brought up German Nazism. They brought up the El Paso, Texas mass shooter, the Buffalo mass shooter. They mention white Christianity and, of course, Adolf Hitler. Here's a quote. Our new eco-fascists hate dark-skinned immigrants, especially the imaginary hordes seeking to overrun the country with illegal Democratic Party votes, unquote. So to me, when you're covering a community that has been victimized by their utility, these are people that lost their homes through no fault of their own, I just thought it was Pretty ridiculous and pretty, um, uh, I don't know, exclusionary. But so I got on my soapbox a little bit. Um, L.A. Times is a massive organization; they have hundreds of reporters. They're owned by a billionaire. Um, so, and that's just uh, my take on things. People can read more. It's my bottom lines column on Newsdata.com. I've tag these two journalists i asked them a couple of questions about those I haven't had any response but what overall i thought were pretty mean spirited and um gosh i don't know uh, just uh exclusionary kind of questioning whether the people that live around here should be able to continue to do so so i don't and know what's, that's, what's your to take? be
1: clear this was a story about extremists that just happened to touch on energy policy, right? Yeah, it's to me- Wait, it was a story about energy policy that somehow dragged in extremist politics.
0: Yeah, you see there's a lot from the LA Times. Um, You know, there's 12.5 million people in the LA area, metro area. I think they probably have a lot to worry about down there. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my issue here, is let's cover wildfire survivors, and let's just, I mean, it didn't take long for this story. The, the, really, the suggestion here is there, there are a lot of extremists up there. There's a lot of, um, you know, they said there's no doubt, there's no denying that MAGA republicanism is fl- flourishing in the state's pastoral parts. But there's a lot of other types of people that live here too. That's kind of my uh, issue. I mean, it, with
1: that. to be fair, it well, it is yeah. true that there is a certain number oh, yeah. of a, a higher percentage of you know, uh, people who identify with more extremist strands of politics and and views. That's it. Right. That I'm, I'm not. I'm not endorsing uh, or. Uh, condemning the LA Times coverage, but you know the, you could make the same statement about parts of Eastern Washington and certainly Idaho. Okay. I have never seen a time in all the coverage I have done of those two areas where that is relevant at all to oh. the discussion of energy policy, even as as deplorable as many people <sighs> find that the, those views. Yeah. And it does not affect it, it. It is a minority group and it is very relevant in terms of coverage of how it, how they influence politics and cultural discussions, et cetera. Sure. I have never seen a reason to that they, it affects energy policy. And so, it, for yeah. full disclosure, I've done some freelancing in the past a little bit for LA Times. Okay. Uh, I just want to. Disclose that.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the LA Times. You know, to me, you're covering climate change. LA is a city, as a coastal city, that's also affected by climate change. I don't see them going down to the coast and and analyzing the political, racial, social makeup of the people there and suggesting maybe they should not be able to rebuild. Um, But, yeah, you know, this is state of Jefferson territory. There is that here. There's also... We've had a bunch of San Franciscans come out here after COVID too. There's there's a lot more diversity. I just I'm uncomfortable with the the sort of the positioning here, but you know they have a right to say what they want. They're these are opinion pieces that they're writing also. Yeah. So, but um, we'll see if there's any response. And yeah, just something I felt I had to write on this one.
1: Yeah, and I I will say. It is a very legitimate conversation to have and and very legitimate thing to cover the discussion of, to what degree do public policies uh, subsidize people living in areas that are just really not environmentally, ecologically sustainable, from uh, floodplain insurance to this sort of thing, uh, subsidizing or making it possible to expand development in what's called the But uh, the WUI, W-U-I, something like Wildlands, that's not it, but Urban Interface, that really affect, it increases risk of wildfires. It means that we have to concentrate resources on protecting property and life, life and property, which is, you know, understandably the priority when there's a wildfire. But that means dedicating more resources that are to dealing with spread out properties that in those resources, if those houses weren't there, those are resources that could be going to containing these wildfires quicker and managing them. So I mean, there's a very real conversation to have about how public policy and public spending affects development and where do we want to continue with that? So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's guess, legit. The question of Greenville—it's a legit question. Yeah, so bringing can, Nazis into
0: it—yeah, it's a little <laughs> much. Um, and you know, you could look at New Orleans. You could look at Florida. Yeah. You could look at <clears throat>, Texas. Winterstrom, Storm Uri. Uh, There's a lot of ugly politics that's mixed in with this kind of stuff. Um, but do we do we withdraw from this battle? Do we do we? Uh, withdraw from the the coastal lands. Um, San Francisco is built in a very dangerous spot. <laughs> like it's it's burned. You know, San Francisco burned to the ground in eighteen fifty one. Nobody would ever question whether it should be rebuilt. And when you start look, you know, sort of analyzing the political attitudes of people and whether, you know, it's just odd to me. And yeah, what's going to happen in Florida, like? Will there be arguments we shouldn't rebuild on the coast? I mean, Florida has been flattened by this by this hurricane, Hurricane Ian. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's today's environment. Uh, I just would, would like to see a little more balance from the LA Times. They fired off these articles, each one you know pre-written, three days in a row. I think there might be more, uh, but yeah, this is this is a public conversation, and we all have our Different viewpoints. So I just think bringing race and religion and politics and all that into into it um, is, is a little little much. It's I'd, I'm an editor. I would have never approved a lead referring to the rest of the people as us and the people rural people as them. You know, that's completely ridiculous. But anyhow, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> you can read more. <laughs> no, in my it's column. a
1: it's a fair point. I I think that's a fair point about editorial decisions, but yeah, as Jason was just saying, it's a really great column that he wrote, newsdata.com, you. check it out. It, you know, I, I know we're kind of running long, apologize yes. listeners, just say as quickly, you mentioned Florida, uh, I, there's a fascinating documentary from a few years ago, I think it ran on PBS, I, I watched it on one of the streaming services called The Great Swamp, about the history of the Everglades and all the efforts to drain it and develop it yeah. and just all the problems that caused. Yep. Uh, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, you go in Corps of engineers, whoever, some uh, entrepreneur comes up with a plan to drain this area and, and turn it into farmland or what have you. And that creates a problem. And so they're like, well, let's go tweak it with this. And just this very mechanical uh, technophile, approach to, you know, and thinking it's, well, if we can just silo this one thing and deal with it, and, you know, you tweak one thing over here in nature, and so often it's like 10 other things.
0: Yeah, it's so like squeezing affected. a balloon, it pops up yeah. somewhere else.
1: It, right? Yeah, I mean,
0: Washington, D.C. is built on a swamp because, yeah. you know, George Washington didn't want to have to tri- travel to Philadelphia, so, um, and you see this New Orleans, is built in a
1: bowl, below sea oh, yeah. level. Um, that was not a great idea, but, um, well, again, not the original city. The French Quarter is above sea level. And then they developed everything else yeah. in a bowl. Yeah. Well, we should wrap up here. We're okay. going long. Uh, so that's all for me, Dan Catchpole. Thank you from, for listening. As always, if you like this podcast, please recommend it to your friends. Uh, rate and review it on whichever platform you listen to. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. And... Uh, energy West is edited and produced by our colleagues at Pioneer Utility Resources and Lucky Sound Studios. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dcatchpole, and my co-host Jason Fordney is on Twitter at Fordney Energy. Yes, thanks for listening to Newsdata's Energy West. You can read more of our coverage at newsdata.com.
0: Nobody covers energy in the West like we do. Follow us on Twitter. CEM is at CEM Newsdata. That's the letter CEM Newsdata. Clearing up is at CU Newsdata. That's letters CU News Data. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow.